Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me this morning. Let's open them up to the book of Romans in chapter 4. The book of Romans in chapter 4. As we come now to our last message in our study of Romans 3 and 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 23. And we're going to lead to read the final three verses of the chapter. So Romans 4 beginning in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, speaking of Abraham, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I want to begin this morning with uh, the words to a song entitled, All You'll Ever Need. The blood of Jesus, it is like the widow's oar. It's enough to pay the price to set you free. It can fill up every jar and every heart that ever beat when it's all you have It's all you'll ever need. The blood of Jesus, it is like the leper's river, running humble with a power you cannot see. Seven times go under, let the waters wash you clean, only go down to the Jordan and believe. The blood of Jesus, it is like Elisha's fire, falling on the altar of your faith. All the wisdom in the world could never conjure up a spark, and no power of hell could ever quench this flame. I need it, I need it. The closer that I grow, the more I come to know how much I need the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, it is like the widow's oar. When it's all you have, it's all you'll ever need. The message of that short song is, in a lot of ways, the same message that Paul has been teaching to us in Romans 3 and Romans 4. There is only one thing you need to be made right with God. There is only one thing that you need to have His blessings and to be eternally safe, secure, and happy. Dear friends at Mount Hermon, there is only one thing that we need. And it is the blood of Jesus. It is the saving work of Jesus Christ applied to our souls. The gospel is the good news that unrighteous people can be made righteous in the sight of God by believing on Jesus Christ. The moment we believe on Christ, all that He accomplished in His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His triumphant resurrection, all that was accomplished there is applied to our souls. This is really hard for people to grasp. Could it really be that all I have to do is trust Jesus. 
Could it really be that all I have to do is turn to Him and rest in what He has already done? Surely there must be something that I must do in order to be right with God. Something that I must add to the equation. Some work, some ritual, something. And the Bible's answer is that the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. It's all you'll ever need. And it's yours. The saving work of Jesus Christ is yours when you believe. Romans 3 through 4 are all about this doctrine called justification. Let's just say it one more time. Say justification. I want it to be an easy word for you. I want it to be a word that you know well because it's an important word in the Bible. It's a word you'll encounter several times in the scriptures. I want you to know it well. The idea of justification is that God declares us righteous in His sight. And the reason He justifies us, the reason He declares us righteous in His sight is so that He can be a just God, a holy God in blessing us, in putting His Spirit into us, in giving us the benefits of His love. And how is it that God can declare unrighteous people righteous? By the perfect righteousness of Jesus being imputed or credited to our account. Our guilt was imputed to Jesus at the cross so that He bore our punishment and took it away. And similarly, the moment we believe, His perfection is imputed to us and we live in the blessings of God. To put the gospel in the simplest terms, this means Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. If we believe on Him, we are right with God, our sins are forgiven, and we will go to heaven when we die. In chapter 4, Paul has conclusively shown that this way of salvation that he is preaching, this justification by faith alone, that this is the same gospel taught by God in every generation. It is no new thing. It's not Paul's idea. In particular, Paul appeals to the Old Testament. And not just to the Old Testament, but to the law of God, the first five books. And not just to the law, but to Genesis itself, to Abraham, the father of God's people. And he draws our attention to this huge moment in redemptive history and in the pages of our scriptures. And he reminds us that Abraham himself believed. And his faith was counted as righteousness. Paul has reminded us of circumcision and that this was given to point to a day when all of Abraham's offspring from many nations would all be saved the same way that Abraham was saved. Paul has been pressing home that salvation always has been and always will be by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And now we come to the end of his argument, the summary of his case, verses 23 through 25. The key proof text, so to speak, that Paul has been using to prove that his gospel is true has been Genesis 15, 6. That verse has been 
running like a river through all of Romans 4. It is what Paul comes back to again and again. Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Paul directly quotes that verse twice. He quotes it in verse 3 and he quotes it in verse 22. But in reality, almost all of Romans 4 is a sermon on Genesis 15, 6. And Paul explains the meaning of that verse. He, He draws out some of the implications of that verse and now he applies it to us. For is that not exactly what he is doing in verse 23? Verse 22, he quotes it again. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. He is saying that this teaching has real and substantial application for you and for me. This verse was not written in the book of Genesis in our Bible simply to tell us about how Abraham was saved. According to Paul, this verse was to tell us about our way of salvation. If those who are the saved, if those who are the elect of God, if those who are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, if they are Abraham's offspring and Abraham was saved by faith alone, how would you expect his offspring to be saved? But by faith alone. So Genesis 15.6 was written down for us. God had you and me in mind and many other believers when the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write down those words. Look carefully at verse 24. Verse 24. Abraham believed in the all-powerful, always faithful, only true God. Abraham's faith in the God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord is the God in whom we must put our faith if we are to be saved. Abraham believed in a God who had the power to raise his son Isaac from the dead and that faith saved him. We believe in the same God, a God who did raise his son from the dead and if we believe on that God, then that faith will save us. In Romans 3, 21, through the end of the chapter, Paul explained the gospel. In Romans 4, Paul proved the gospel from the Old Testament and now with his case having been made and applied to us, he sums up the gospel in verse 25. Look at verse 25. He he ends this section of Romans, this all-important, absolutely glorious section of Scripture with the gospel in a nutshell because that's what verse 25 is. It's the gospel in a nutshell. What do we see here? We see that God delivered Jesus to His death, right? Beginning in verse 24, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believed in Him, that's God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. So our Savior was delivered up and it was God who did the delivering. It's absolutely true that Jesus laid His own life down willingly. It's absolutely true that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. 
Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so there can be no doubt that Jesus Christ willingly, voluntarily laid His life down for us in obedience to His Father. But it is equally true that it was the will of God that moved Jesus to do what He did. Back in our study of Abraham and Isaac, we noticed how Abraham led Isaac to the altar where he was to be sacrificed. How Abraham bound his son. How Abraham took the knife to slay his son. And all the while, Isaac himself seemed to cooperate. Isaac willingly submitted to this death, perhaps even voluntarily laying himself down on the altar. This is a picture for us of the cross in which Jesus cooperated and willingly laid down His life and yet it was His Father who brought Him to the cross. It was His Father who bound Him there, ordained for those nails and that crown of thorns and that spear to be used on His body. It was Jesus. It was the Father who brought Jesus to the altar of the cross where He would receive the knife of the wrath of God, pierce His soul for the sins of God's people. And so it was the Father that delivered Jesus up to death. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him. He has put him to grief. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Judas did when he betrayed him. The Jews did when they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate did when he handed Jesus over to the people and he's still guilty though he tried to wash his hands. The Romans did when they actually put him on the cross, put the crown of thorns on his head, put the spear in his side. You and I killed Jesus in the sense that it was our sins that he was dying for. But the ultimate answer is this one. It was the Father that killed His Son. It was God the Father who delivered His Son to death. That's what our verse says here. It's what verses say throughout the Bible. Why did He do it? Well, God did it for His own glory. It was by giving His Son that the wonders of God's mercy and justice His grace and His righteousness would all come together and show themselves in greater density than at any other moment in the history of our world. If you want to see the awesome character of God, it is shown nowhere else in the history of the world in more fullness than it is shown at the cross. What attribute of God can you think of 
that we do not see displayed in remarkable fashion at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God gave up His Son on the cross for His glory. He also did it out of love for His Son. I know that sounds strange. (laughs) The Father killed the Son because He loved the Son. Strange as it may sound, God delivered His Son to death and poured out His wrath upon Him because it was His desire to exalt Him as the Son to the highest place in the universe. As the Son of God, He was already highly exalted before you and I even existed. As the Son of God, He already dwelt in indescribable glory. He was high and lifted up. But God sent Jesus to become a man, a second Adam, so that He would be not just the Son of God, but the Son of Man. And by taking on the sins of the people He represented and then being risen from the dead, He is exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the greatest of all men. He is both the Son of God and the Son of Man in glory. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God loves His Son so much that He finds infinite delight in His Son. And He finds so much delight in His Son that God has made it His will to make Jesus the centerpiece of redemption. Jesus is the linchpin of the salvation plan. Jesus is the only way to heaven by which anyone can go. God has made His Son not only the creator of the universe and the sustainer of the universe, but by His death, He is now the Savior of the universe, the one who makes all things new. The one by whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. Underneath these two reasons lies another reason why God delivered His Son to death. It's the reason taught most clearly in verse 25. Namely, Jesus was delivered up by His Father for our trespasses. God's heart was moved by love for His people. From the foundations of the earth, God had set His love upon His people. And He's worked everything from the moment of creation to the moment it ends including the rise and fall of empires and everything smaller, has been worked for the good of His people. Not one event, no matter how big or how small, has ever taken place in the history of the universe that was not ultimately for the good of God's children. God loves His children with an unimaginable love, an unquenchable love, an unstoppable love. And God will not allow His children to remain slaves to sin. He will not allow His children to remain under His condemnation. God would not see His children condemned to hell. The hell that He created for Satan and the demons and the wicked. God's children were wicked and are wicked, but He will not have them remain that way. And so in order that He may be just in blessing them, in order that He may be right in counting them righteous, He has given His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered Him up to death. 
Jesus took the guilt of our trespasses, our law-breaking onto himself. The only man who was not a criminal in the court of God became the ultimate criminal in the court of God. All of our crimes as Christians imputed onto him. He bore the punishment we deserved and he bore it fully so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Are you with me? The question I have for you then is this. Are you a child of God? Has the work of Jesus Christ been applied to your soul? Have your sins been removed away from you as far as the east is from the west? Can you say that you are counted righteous in the sight of God? That the Holy Spirit is living in your soul? That you are enjoying a real and vital relationship with the Creator of the world? The Gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The next thing we see in our verse 25 is that not only was it God who delivered Jesus to death, and He did so for our trespasses, but it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, uh, passive, right, since there, God's doing the work, Jesus is receiving the work, was raised for our justification. As I said earlier, even when Jesus was placed on a cross, the empty tomb was in view. God would not have put His Son on the cross had He not already ordained that it would be so that His Son would get up from the dead. There would be no humiliation without exaltation. Dear Christian, that's really important for you and me to remember because it's true for us too as children of God. God brings no cross into your life that He does not ultimately intend to relieve you from. In this life, God will bring many trials and tribulations to His people. You may get cancer. You may get Alzheimer's. You may watch a child or a grandchild die. You may lose a job you've worked at for, you, for years and invested yourself in. You may struggle with bouts of depression or with financial insecurity or with terrible temptations. But dear Christian, there is no cross that God will bring into your life that He will not ultimately raise you from. One day God will bring you to the trial of death itself. Just like His Son, you will walk through the valley of the shadow. But He will not leave you there. Even in death, He will be with you. And through death, He will bring you into everlasting life. Every cross you bear today is a temporary cross. So be like your Savior. Be willing to endure every cross because you know the empty tomb is coming. You've heard the old phrase, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. Hold on. Be faithful to your God in whatever trial He's brought into your life on this day. Rely on His strength. 
He brings no tears into your life that He will not ultimately use to increase your joy. Your mourning shall turn to dancing. Do you believe it? If it's not so, may God strike me down this moment because His Word assures it. Believe it. The last thing we see in this verse is that Jesus was raised for our justification. Do you see that? Verse 25, raised for our justification. We spent an entire message on those few words this past Easter. And so my intention is not to go into great detail uh, again on that this morning. But let me sum up what I think Paul is saying when he says that Jesus was raised for our justification. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Jesus was obedient to His Father, even to the cross. And Jesus was obedient for us. The righteousness that He accomplished in His 33 years of living and in His dying, He accomplished for us, His people. We who have utterly failed at obedience, we who have no righteousness at all, We who, in the picture of the opening chapters of Genesis, we're starting naked before a holy God. We are vulnerable. And Jesus Christ came, and throughout His life and through His death, He fashioned a garment of righteousness. He wove it through His own actions and attitudes and obedience. And now when we believe, that garment of righteousness is given to us. How does God respond? to perfect righteousness. How does the Father respond to perfect obedience? Will God allow a man who has been perfectly obedient and perfectly righteous to stay dead? Absolutely not. God loves all that is good with an infinite love. It is His good pleasure to bless and to bless and to bless when He sees righteousness. And so when God saw the perfect obedience of Jesus, even to death, He rose Jesus from the dead in order to reward Him, to bless Him, to pour out His infinite love upon Him for having obeyed so perfectly. This is how God responds to righteousness with infinite love and infinite blessing. And Jesus is experiencing that right now. All authority and power in heaven and under earth has been given to Him. Jesus has been exalted. And His resurrection guarantees that that is what is ahead for us as people too. We too will be exalted. We too will reign with Christ. Remember the righteousness that God is blessing Jesus for is the righteousness that is now yours by faith. When God looks at His Son, He sees such perfect, such a, such a perfect resemblance of His own glory and He loves and He blesses the Son for that. But now that perfect image of His own glory has been placed on you, dear Christian. Sinner that you are, God looks at you and sees His Son, Jesus Christ. And what is the inclination of God's heart when He sees the resemblance of His Son? Love and blessing forever? 
Jesus was the first fruits. You and I will follow. His resurrection guarantees that all who wear His righteousness have been accepted by God. His resurrection guarantees that when you believe on Him, you are accepted by God. You now dwell in the blessings of God, whether you see it yet or not. And one day you will enter into it in all its fullness. Dear friend, Do you know that you are loved by God? Do you have the assurance that He has nothing in store for you but great blessing? Do you have good reason to believe that your Father delights in you? That He sings over you? That He finds joy in working His awesome power for your benefit? All these things may sound too good to be true, And if you've not been justified by faith in Jesus, it's not true for you. It's just not. Your story is a much darker one. The much darker ending. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by grace, Jesus' righteousness is credited to your account and God is just and right to treat you in just this way. Indeed, His holiness demands that He treat you with such love, and it is His great, great pleasure to do so. So here we are. We've completed four chapters of Romans. What have we seen? We've seen the utter depravity of mankind laid out for us in all its ugliness. We've seen the very depths of our sinfulness exposed. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way through the middle of Romans 3, we saw that we are not by nature good people, that we do not by nature do good things. We've seen that our hearts by nature are at enmity with God. We don't want to honor Him. We don't want to love Him. We don't want to keep His commandments that a natural man or woman, a natural boy or girl is wretched and twisted and spiritually dead. That's God's assessment of us. But we've also seen the great wisdom of God in coming up with a plan that would allow Him to show love and mercy and blessing to terrible sinners while still remaining the holy God that He is. The genius of the Gospel was laid out for us in Romans 3.21-26. We see in Romans 3.21-26 that God has found a way to be both just and the justifier of the one who believes on Christ. We've seen the awesome love of God. It's true. Paul actually hasn't used the word love yet in the first four chapters of Romans. We've not seen the word love in Romans yet. But Paul's getting ready to use it twice in chapter 5, and he'll use it some more in in the grade 8, Romans 8. He'll use it again in Romans 12, then he'll use it again in Romans 13, he'll use it some more in Romans 14, he'll use it again in Romans 15. In Romans 5, 8, Paul says this, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
In other words, as we have been studying the gospel all these weeks and months, as we have been studying the way of salvation that God's wisdom has designed for us, we have been studying nothing less than the awesome love of God. Is it not love to look upon wretched sinners and instead of casting them to hell as they deserve, to take upon yourself the very wrath they deserve so that they can be made pure to dwell in your glory forever. See the Lord Jesus Christ bearing the punishment for sinners on the cross and ask yourself, do you doubt God's love? How can you doubt God's love for you? You have no right to doubt God's love for you when He has shown it so clearly. You have seen the lengths that He is willing to go to in order to make wretched sinners His children. You ought to be amazed. We've seen in these chapters the utter necessity of Jesus Christ. We've seen how the whole plan hinges on Him. How without Jesus, God cannot remain God and save us. No other religion solves the riddle of God's holiness. No other religion has an answer to how God can remain righteous and yet justify unrighteous people. The wisdom of our God in salvation is all bound up in Jesus Christ. He's the answer to the riddle. Take Jesus away and God's way of salvation falls down like a house of cards. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. And every man who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. We've also seen in our study that the way of God's salvation is this. Faith alone. Not faith plus works, not faith plus ritual, not faith plus law keeping, not faith plus circumcision, not faith plus anything. It's faith alone. Martin Luther said this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's often been said this is the doctrine on which you and I stand or fall. Will you rest in Christ alone? Or will you try and accomplish some part of your salvation in your own strength? Will you receive the great gift of salvation in Jesus or will you refuse what is freely offered to you in order to try and purchase through some act of your own that same salvation that will never work? Salvation is by faith and faith alone. And so I want to close our study of Romans 3 and 4 this way. How should we as a church come away from these glorious truths that we have seen? These are obvious answers. They're important answers. First, we should come away a believing people. We should come away a believing people. What a tragedy to think that there may be someone who has been with us over these past months and you've heard the gospel week after week after week and yet you still refuse to come to the Lord Jesus. Is there anyone here like that? Are you like that? Young people, 
Are there any of you here who still refuse to trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Are there any of us here who still refuse to trust Jesus and to receive the great gift of having God as our God, our sins forgiven, hell avoided, heaven granted? Why in the world would any of us in this room not come to Christ? Why would we not turn to Him? Are there still some sins that that you want to pursue? Are you convinced that you're happier living your own life, your own way? Are you putting off coming to Christ because, because you know that trusting Jesus means trusting Him enough to do what He says? You don't want a master, you want to be your own master? Do you just not want to follow Him? You think it will be hard? You think it will be burdensome to follow Him? How can it be burdensome to obey a master that you know loves you with a love greater than all of the oceans on this planet combined? Why would you want to keep living your own life, your own way, when a better way is offered to you? Why would you want to continue pursuing sins when you know they lead to pain, you know they lead to death, you know they lead to wreckage in your life and in the lives of others? The reason Romans 3 and 4 exist is to scream to our souls, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. Rest in His arms. Receive His forgiveness. Bask in His awesome love for you. Find joy in Him and follow Him. It's the safest place in the world to be. Paul stood before the Ephesian elders and he told them, I am innocent of the blood of you. He said, for I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. I am no Paul and there are many deficiencies in my preaching, but I can say to you that I have tried as clearly and thoroughly as I know how to make the gospel clear. If you still refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what more I can do to make it plain. Why will you not believe? What foolish ideas have gripped your heart? What sin has so enslaved you that you would rather have that sin than the greatest gift of the world? God Himself is your God. My prayer is that all of those appeals and exhortations are needless because every one of us in this room is believing. I want that to be true. I have good reason to be confident about so many of you. But I'm not a fool. There's enough of us in this room to believe that there should be several who probably aren't believing. May God break your heart and heart. May God woo you to Himself and give you faith. We should come away a believing people. We should come away a humble and a thankful people. It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian and how it ought to humble us. We live every day in the blessings of an undeserved love. We live every day under the protective care of a mighty, mighty Savior who is leading us home to Himself. How can we not be thankful?
We look around, we see thousands, millions, indeed billions of people on our planet who do not have what we have. We see people walking in utter hatred towards God, ignorant of true wisdom, blind and lost and utterly confused and twisted in their hearts. As we remember our past, all we can say is there, but for the grace of God goes I. If we believe the gospel, it should bear the fruit of humility and gratitude in our souls. And so test yourself and pray with me that God would make us a thankful and humble church. And then finally, we should come away a gospel-sharing people. This great gift we've received is not for us alone. The gospel has been entrusted to us that we would share it with all who need it, which is everyone. This study of the gospel that we've been through was not just so that you can have a proper thinking about salvation in your brain. This study has been so that you can communicate these things to others. Yes, for your own sake, I want you to know that salvation is by trusting in Jesus Christ who accomplished perfect righteousness for all who believe and bore their guilt on the cross. I want you to understand that salvation is by faith and faith alone and that it must be this way for God to be God and still save people. But I don't want you to know these things so you can just be smarter. I want you to know these things so that you will have confidence in sharing the gospel that you will see the utter importance of sharing the gospel the wonderful privilege of sharing the gospel and so that you will feel equipped to share the gospel with your friends and your family members and your neighbors I've shared before that when I think about the gospel I think of four words God, man, Christ, response if you were sitting with a, with a friend could you, could you tell them about God Could you tell them about His holiness and His might and how perfect He is in His glory? Could you tell them about man and our sinful condition and why it is that we need to be saved? Could you explain to them how Christ is the answer? That He lived that perfect life to accomplish the righteousness we failed to have. That He died on the cross bearing the sin and the guilt of all who believe on Him. Could you explain to them how He rose from the dead and now all who respond with faith and repentance will be saved? Can you share the Gospel? Do you feel equipped to share the Gospel? I want you to feel equipped. I want you to to feel prepared. Because I want us to all be doing it. (laughs) And so Mount Hermon, let us be a believing people. Let us be a humble, thankful people. And let us be a gospel-sharing people. To God be the glory. Amen? Let's pray.